Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Do you know what song has been stuck in my head since last week's episode? Um, no. It's that Queen song where he sings something like 100 Degrees, that's why they call him Mr. Fahrenheit. In my head, ever since last week's episode, I've been calling you Mr. Centigrade. Wow. You know, I had this thing, uh, I think, was it a media interview or something I was doing? And I, I think I was saying one and a half blahs, right? And, you know, to do with um, climate change. And I... And trouble is, you you you'd like got inside my head because I was at one and a half Celsius, and then I thought thought that sounds really weird, Celsius. Have we had some response on this? We've had a few tweets siding with you, ah, but many many more saying no. Of course, it's Celsius. And one of our listeners, in fact, John Wright, did a poll on Twitter. Um, yeah, he, he phrased the question like this: After listening to the latest cheerful podcast, I'm curious. What everyone thinks is correct when talking about the temperature. Please RT for better results. Retweet for better results. Thanks. And the options he gave were Celsius, centigrade, and just show the results, which is something if people are on Twitter, they'll know that you can't see the results of a poll unless you vote in it. So um, right. th that would be equivalent to a, a, a don't know, I guess. So um, what do you think the percentages came out as? 50-50. Okay. So just show results came out as 11%. So let's discount those yeah. and then it went 70 18 basically 70.5 18.5 which way do you think it went clearly i won celsius won so so this morning i was thinking about this and i went on twitter and i didn't mention your name or anything and i asked the question are there any things that you willfully call by their old-fashioned name, like, for example, centigrade versus Celsius? And I had loads of response to it, and I thought I could test you on a few things to see how up-to-date... Oh, go on, go on. Okay. This is really good. So, yeah, so, I'm excited So I'm going to describe some things, and, yeah, and you, yeah. you see if you come up with yeah. uh, So firstly, they are a fruity sweet. They're square in shape. They're individually wrapped, and the packet is yellow and uh it has red writing opal fruit opal fruit opal there we fruit. go they've been called starburst since the 90s i don't believe that right next uh okay uh you you've <laughs> made to make your mouth water you you've yep. you've been to the lavatory and you want to get rid of what you've done in the lavatory what, what do you do flush okay that's the modern word some people are saying pull the chain I mean, I might be sort of 1980s, but I'm not 1880s, yeah. Okay, uh, there, there is a particular, I think it's some kind of moisturiser or face cream. Oh, yeah, I like that. It is yeah. the oil of... Ulay. Olay since the 80s, I think, Ed. Uh, you want to take your sons uh, to meet Mickey Mouse, but you don't want to go all the way across to the USA. Uh, Disneyland Paris. So you don't call it Euro Disney, then? Is Euro Disney the old-fashioned word? Yeah, it is, yeah. So you're, you're surprisingly modern here. I've got crossover appeal, Jeff. I think <laughs> in certain respects, I'm sort of stuck in the 1980s. Clothing. Because <laughs> <laughs> Ed, Ed still gets all his clothes from CNA, even though it hasn't been here since the 80s. Certain words. Um, bit music. I don't know, really. Mm. If you were watching a TV soap opera set in Yorkshire about rural life... Emmerdale. 
Not you see, I would say Emmerdale Farm. I think though the trouble is, it's a bit like you've sort of, uh, you've kind of. I'm prompting yeah, you to prompt, be modern. Exactly, yes. exactly, exactly. Well, Ed, you you were a surprisingly modern man. God, I mean, it's so hard to keep up. Look, all I can say is it's so hard to keep up. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I. That's my conclusion from all this. I mean, look, in the days when there were four channels, or indeed three, <laughs> no, no interweb. I mean, honestly, like, your modern life is just confusing, isn't it? It is, but you 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 do a remarkable job of navigating it. So. What are we talking about this week? This week, we're talking about the future of trade unions and worker organising. We've talked a lot recently about what the pandemic has revealed about undervalued and precarious work. And history shows us that trade unions will be absolutely vital to fixing that. Now, the problem is that we know that trade union membership has been in decline for decades around the world. There are some signs that membership has been improving more recently. So, for example, it was up by about 90,000 in the UK last year. But we're a long way from the coverage and uh, influence that unions used to uh, exercise. So we're going to be looking at a rate. And, and, and if you care about inequality in our society, all the evidence is, and even organisations like the International Monetary Fund have now accepted this, that the decline of unions is intimately connected with growing inequality. So we're going to be looking at a range of ideas to boost the power of workers. Which we'll be talking to Alex Marshall, a career and union organiser who's currently campaigning for better rights for delivery riders. We'll be asking Alex about how to go about organising precarious work in the gig economy. To Michelle Miller, who's founded an online platform in the US called Coworker. She's going to be talking about how tools like hers can help workers organise outside of traditional union structures. And then we'll be talking to Richard Wagstaff about developments in New Zealand. Richard leads their equivalent of the TUC, the Trade Union Congress, and has been part of developing a new system of sectoral bargaining to negotiate better conditions for workers in low-paid sectors. Interestingly, the, the person who's recommended this to the Labour government is somebody who was a former Conservative Prime Minister of New Zealand and was appointed uh, to lead a working party on it. We'll be talking to Richard about the proposal and why the outcome of New Zealand's election is crucial for making it a reality. And our cheerful person this week is writer and performer Bernadette Russell, and we're going to be talking to her about how to stay hopeful in challenging times. So what is your reason to be cheerful? Mine is a heartwarming story. It's a heartwarming story of a five-year-old who has been recognised at such a young age with a prestigious honour for work detecting mines and explosives in cambodia the five-year-old is a five-year-old african giant rat called magawa wow uh so this is a great story and i my children told me it was on news round but actually i saw it first saw it in the new york times and basically this rat uh, has received a gold medal bestowed by the people dispensary for sick animals a british charity that's often called the animals george cross and basically Magawa has discovered 39 landmines and 28 pieces of unexploded ordnance and helped clear more than 1.5 million square feet of land over the past four years. And, and basically, the, the, the thing to understand on this is that the, the rat is very light, therefore doesn't set off the landmine, but is very good at sort of sniffing them out. Uh, Magawa is the most successful rat to have taken part in the program, was trained to detect TNT, the chemical compound within explosives, uh, much faster than any person in searching for landmines. Magawa can search an area the size of a tennis court in 30 minutes, whereas a person with a metal detector would usually take four days to search an area of that size. When Magawa finds a mine, he signals to his handler by scratching the earth above it. Unlike humans, he is too light to detonate a mine, so minimal risk of injury. And... You know, it shows that it shows that we can all contribute to a better world. I'm not being funny, but I feel that I could do a tennis court with a metal detector in 30 minutes. I could maybe do it in 15. I think whoever's taking four and a half days, they're really dragging it out. No, I know, comrade. <laughs> but I mean, you know, you don't. You, it's a landmine we're talking about. You can't just sort of galump around. I mean, so it's basically not like hoovering. Look, I think you're sort of slightly pissing on my chips here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to diminish this rat's accomplishments. Right, let's get on to your reason to be cheerful then. I'm, I'm going uh, okay, okay. to yours. Okay, I've not had a very cheerful week. I've been sort of cocooned away from the world a little bit. But I have, I have watched a little bit of um, 
You know, Bob Mortimer and Paul Whitehouse from the Fast Show have a show. I think it's on BBC Two or BBC Four where they just go fishing. Now, I'm I'm not into fishing. I, uh, you know, I'm vegetarian, so I'm a little uncomfortable with the whole thing. But it's basically just two middle aged men having a conversation. There's something really slow and warm and lovely about it. So that's got me through my a bit like us. Yes, very much so. I think uh, I'm seeing seeing a lot of us in that. Maybe we could pitch a show to the BBC where we go, I don't know, flying a kite or trampolining. Ed and Jeff go to the leisure centre. Ed and Jeff go to the leisure centre, definitely. What, what, have you been fishing? I, I went once, before I was veggie, I once was doing a, a series of outside broadcasts from Cornwall and I went out sea fishing and the, the, the guy sort of reeled in a fish and then I watched how long it took a fish to die and it, I got very squeamish about it and it's one of the things that contributed me to me thinking, maybe I'm going to go veggie. So you, all of life is here, rats, fish... Snickers, marathons, Celsius. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So to talk about some of the ways in which people are finding to organise workers, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Alex Marshall, who's chair of the Couriers and Logistics branch of the IWGB, a small union representing precarious workers. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. No problem. It's my pleasure. Let's just start at the sort of beginning. You've worked as a career for a number of years. Can you tell us about your experiences as a career and what led you to get involved in the union before we come on to the, the particular campaign you're working on? I have been a career now for eight years. Um, my journey to becoming a career was that I didn't really like the idea of the kind of traditional nine to five heading to the same office every day. It kind of brought, brought me out in a cold sweat. Um, the idea of, you know, the freedom of being on the road, not having a fixed workplace, you know, supposedly having that flexibility of being a courier kind of drew me to the road, sort of pay, getting paid to exercise and all those kind of things that you, you associate with being a courier. Um, so I started the job and quite quickly realised that, you know, the flexibility was a myth. Um, I was working long hours, hard hours. I think when I started, I was getting about £30 a day. And all this idea of, you know, having flexibility, working when you want. I mean, the career industry is set up in a way that you're told you're self-employed. But if you try and exercise any flexibility, there's kind of various ways that they sort of dock your wages. You lose your 20% bonus and that they sort of trick you into working full time without holiday pay, without pension, without all these things. So I quite quickly realised that I had issues with the way the industry was set up. And this was my sort of journey to kind of joining a trade union, uh, realising that, you know, me by myself, I wasn't going to be able to fix things. The IWGB careers branch had, had recently formed. I joined it without that much of a knowledge of trade unions, but I thought, you know, I'm going to support this. Um, so we started unionising at my workplace and we started to win a bunch of things at a company called TDL, which is a big medical company in central London, um, won our worker status. We're getting paid pensions, you know, which is unheard of. We, I was working alongside with guys who'd been in the industry 25, 30 years, and they were suddenly getting holiday pay and a pension. Um, so we were starting to change the industry. And from there, we're sort of kicking on with the IWGB career and logistics branch. And you're now helping to coordinate the Riders' Revolt. Tell us what that is and what you're arguing for. The IWGB career and logistics branch kind of was founded a few years ago. And that was early days of these kind of app-based kind of courier, um, yeah, courier ways of picking up stuff, delivering stuff. Um, but we've seen, as I'm sure everyone knows, this emergence of like delivery Uber. You, you can hardly leave the house without seeing, you know, one of your neighbours getting a takeaway or something nowadays. So there's been more and more of this app-based kind of way of working. Um, and the conditions, if we thought they were bad in the courier industry before, with these guys, it's even worse. You know, we're seeing wages plummeting. We're seeing cities flooded with riders. And it's Deliveroo where you're focused. Yeah. So, I mean, hence Riders Revolt. It is it is based on Deliveroo, but we're still organising with Uber Eats, Just Eat. And what are you trying for with Deliveroo? What, how's it go, well, how are you going about this campaign? So, I mean, one one of the most tragic things about this is, you know, you think when you're launching a campaign and putting the amount of strength and devotion into these kind of things, you, you're really trying to, like, topple mountains. But what these guys are actually fighting for are, are 
the absolute basics, you know, like one of our de- demands off a recent launch at our AGM is for these guys to have a fair process around terminations. That's how desperate the situation is. We've got one guy in Sheffield who's just been accused of not following uh, COVID regulations. You know, this guy's from the BAME community who've been, you know, adversely affected in this pandemic. He's been really scared to work. He's got a young family. He's got three kids. He's managed to get himself out to work. He's been applauded, but he's been terrified throughout. He's suddenly got a, an, an email saying, yeah, Khaled, you didn't follow these these guidelines, which he, he swears he has, and you've been terminated. He's thinking, I've worn a mask. I've tried as hard as I can to keep distance from people. And it's, it's Kafka-esque, you know. You're, you're, you're left standing there thinking what have I done wrong? And and most of the time, these guys just give up. And what we're trying to instill in everyone is that you don't have to give up. Like we're actually fighting for a fair process, for fair pay, for fair treatment. And, you know, to actually give these guys a voice to actually say this is completely unfair, especially off the back of the shift they've just put in throughout the pandemic. And just in terms of your riders revolt, what's the what's the main set of demands? The main demands of rights, respect and fair pay. So these guys, they, they want to be able to take a living wage home after they've, you know, subtracted the cost of doing the job. They want to have respect, you know, whether that's from the customers, the re- restaurants or their employers. And they want more rights. You know, these guys should be able to accrue holidays or they should be able to have some sort of pension. You know, they should have better rights than they do because at the moment they've got nothing. So they, they deserve the right to a fair process, whether that's around terminations, whether that's around complaints or anything like that, because at the moment they hardly have a voice unless it's through us. Given, you know, the nature of being a rider, you're, you're a lone ranger, you're out on your own, how easy is it to to organise? It's, it's quite a, an isolated job being a courier in a way. What, what is, you know, what, how have you managed to sort of get these people together and get a set of common goals? So, I mean, yeah, being a courier, it's one of the draws of it, that it is that kind of nomadic existence. But it that that's what can make it so hard to organise. And that's what makes it so easy for these guys to exploit. You know, it's a fractured workforce. There isn't a set workplace. You know, it's there's only so much you can say in a brief exchange at a traffic lights. And if, if you try and say too much, someone thinks you're a weirdo and they sort of cycle off even faster. Um but yeah, I guess I guess WhatsApp groups and, and stuff like that, those have become our workplaces, you know, towns, cities all over the country. They all have uh, localised WhatsApp groups. And if you can get into these WhatsApp groups or, or people approach the union and you get added to the WhatsApp group, you start giving them ideas, you start giving them structure, you start organising and you start you start giving them hope and showing them, you know, through certain action, you can put sustained pressure on companies and, and you can start to make wins. Talk, talk to us about some wins. So, so one of the strategies that we started to roll out is, so for these guys, because they're such precarious workers, the idea of fully going on strike, it's not only like really hard to coordinate with thousands of people working in a city, it's also um, really damaging for them. You know, some of these guys literally can't afford to down tools for a whole night. So one of the strategies we thought of recently is a boycotting strategy. So you target one of the main partners of, you know, Deliveroo or Uber Eats, you know, the McDonald's, Wagamama's, um, Pizza Express, all these kind of places. And all these guys have to do is reject for the whole night. So they can just reject from a place and just stop picking up and they can completely shut down delivery at these restaurants for a whole evening and, you know, cost them hundreds of thousands of pounds over the course of however long they want to do these boycotts. That's one of the ways they've actually got away with you know this bogus idea of flexibility and it's actually beating them with their own their own tool that you know they've given them this flexibility so these guys are now able to use that and all of a sudden waiting times you know get better in these places you know the 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 treatment of the 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 couriers gets better in these places you know they're small gains but the the kind of thing that this then instills in the workers means where where do we go to next so we're talking on this episode about the future of trade unions and do you, do you think there are lessons from your campaigns about how to rebuild the the power of workers and and also just sort of workers engaging in in that type of collective action 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, we're we're organizing in one of one of the kind of industries that is notoriously hard to kind of organize in. And, you know, a lot of the people we're organizing with is such a kind of eclectic mix in the career industry. You know, you don't have to speak good English to be a courier. So we're seeing people from all over the world. But that, you know, it's a really unified struggle. You know, a lot of these people, they're starting from a place where they've got no trust whatsoever in unions but we're so we're starting from a place that's way behind we're, we're convincing them to join the union and then we're convincing them that the action they're taking is going to win them things so yeah i mean we're making huge progress I'm, I'm incredibly optimistic that we can make huge strides in this industry and you know i look forward to these major boycotts and big strikes if, if they have to happen but i think we're definitely on our way there alex we have a thing on the podcast called the jeffocracy which is the idea that jeff is a benign ruler where he has sort of ultimate power and some of us see it as a dystopia but he sees it as a utopia and let's sort of suspend our disbelief i think i would have a lot of takeaways delivered but i would want to know that they were being delivered in a fair ethical way assuming that he made you the sort of secretary of state for the gig economy let's just say what would you say to him you wanted to see happen i think the businesses should be making sure these guys are making at least the living wage after their costs. And that, and that should be the whole time they're logged in. You know, that shouldn't just be when they have a job on them. You know, if you're sat on the side of a street waiting for a job to come, you're, you're at work, you know, you're not at home with your family. So these guys should be getting paid from the second they log in. And it should be at the end of a shift that, you know, once you subtract the costs of doing that job, you should be taking home a living wage. You should be making ends meet. And they should be able to accrue holiday while they're working as well. They should also be able to, you know, at least put away enough money for a pension or even opt into a pension scheme. But yeah, then then on the other hand, it's, you know, restaurants to be treating them better, to be giving them honest waiting times. And then customers to also, you know, respect them, give, give them tips, you know, treat these guys well, because, you know, they have been really risking themselves in recent months. You know, it might... You know, we've been taught to think of these guys as unskilled, but, you know, we couldn't have lasted without couriers over the last sort of six months. You know, these guys have really proved how much they're worth. And and it's time for the public and the companies they work for to treat them like that. Well, Alex Marshall, you're doing incredibly important work and, and you speaking very eloquently about the issues you're dealing with. Thanks so much for joining us. That's my pleasure. We're going to talk now to Michelle Miller, who is doing incredible work. She's the co-founder of Coworker, which is a digital platform helping workers to organise online. Michelle, hello. Hello. Nice to talk to you today. Um, tell us about Coworker then. You, you set it up back in 2013. Uh, do you want to give us a, an overview of what it is and how it works? Yeah, so Coworker is a digital platform that supports worker organizing. Um, we often call ourselves the welcome mat to the labor movement on the internet. Um, and we support usually people who are organizing in their workplaces for the very first time to use popular technology tools to find other coworkers and build a collective advocating for changes and policies at their workplaces. So people like Starbucks baristas, grocery store employees, um, Uber drivers, uh, people in the tech sector, all kinds of different people who are not represented by traditional trade unions um, and want to figure out ways to build collective power in their workplaces um, can come to us and learn how to do it and start to start to build that up for themselves. And your history is working in the, the labor movement in the Service Employees International Union. Um, so, so did you spot a, a kind of gap in worker organizing that needed filling? Is that where, is that where the, this came from? Yeah, so I and my co-founder, Jess Kutch, um, we both worked together at uh, the Service Employees Union. Um, and, you know, in the U.S., only 6% of the private sector employees are um, represented by trade unions. It's very difficult to form a trade union. Um, and what we saw starting around that time was that people were starting these campaigns in their workplaces using popular technology tools like Change.org or Reddit threads or Facebook groups to do what looked to us like labor organizing, even if they didn't call it that. Um, and we thought, what if we met those people and we took what we knew from the trade union movement and we provided it to them? Um, like, how would that start to shift 
um, power inside these workplaces and start to grow the labor movement, even if people can't actually form trade unions in their workplaces? Could we experiment with different forms so that we're kind of building up that collective muscle in other ways? And and when you started, the focus was often single issue policies. Uh, Starbucks was one of your early victories. Can you tell us a little bit about that? In 2014, um, a very early campaign was started by a barista in Atlanta, Georgia, who wanted to overturn the company's policy banning visible tattoos. I want to just say that that was, for our friends in the trade union movement, felt like a real strange thing to start organizing around. They were like, but the pay isn't great. The hours are bad. Why would you invest all this time in organizing around tattoos? But it was incredibly popular. Um, And it has a lot to do with governing how people are able to show up to work and what they're supposed to look like. Um, And what it did was it over the course of two months, 15,000 baristas joined that campaign They ultimately won that campaign um, uh, and got the tattoos policy changed. And what they had was this experience of collective power changing something inside their workplace. And from there, the Starbucks network has grown to 40,000 baristas. It's 15% of Starbucks global workforce. And over the past uh, six years, they've won wage increases. They've won scheduling reforms. When the pandemic hit in the U.S., they were able to convince the company to close stores with pay for six weeks so that people could protect themselves from coronavirus transmission and protect their communities. And all of that came from this early organizing around tattoos. And tell us, tell us about some other victories. I know Uber uh, has mm-hmm. been another one for you. Some of the earliest Uber driver organizing in the U.S. started on Coworker. They were campaigning um, way back around in-app tipping. That was and really raised that issue to national consciousness. Wells Fargo bank tellers ran a campaign identifying consumer fraud at the bank that eventually led to the ouster of the CEO um, and um, a revision of policies around sales goals at retail stores. REI employees, which is an outdoor goods chain in the U.S., um, have won pay increases, scheduling reforms. They were also able to to shut down stores during the pandemic. Um, And so there have just been a lot of places where over the years we've seen these frontline workers really with the engine of themselves alone uh, be able to shift policies that um, previously might have felt impossible to them. Let's talk through this phrase which i was actually going to quote but you you, and you used early on which is the welcome mat on the internet to the labor movement because i guess what's really interesting is how do people get not just onto the welcome mat but sort of in the door i try not to answer this question overly prescriptively because i think we're in the middle of kind of two things at once so one is that um again in order for people to feel like they can actually create institutions, they have to have some experience of collective advocacy working. And I think that takes longer than a few years. Um, I also would say that um, in the US context, at least, the current legal infrastructure through which you are able to establish a worker organization is in serious, dire need of reform. In the current moment and in the current context, because of the legal frameworks in which people are actually trying to organize, where the, where the transmission belt is going is actually trying to kind of, in a mass way, design a new legal infrastructure for worker organization in this country. And on the basis of your co-worker experience, because I think you're completely right to sort of highlight this, we can't just take for granted that everybody would love to join a union but doesn't feel able to or is worried about, you know, being fired or whatever. I mean, no, that that is true of some people. How much do people, the, the workers you're dealing with, particularly younger workers, how much do they know about trade unions? How much are they wanting to, to have a union but, but like, you know, feeling they can't? How much is it all sort of you know, Newton, talk to us a little bit about what you've discovered uh, through your co-worker platform. There's been a fascinating shift that has taken place in just the eight years that we've been running co-worker, honestly. So early on, I would say that most of the people that we were talking to um, were really focused on changing the one thing inside their workplace and running the one campaign and weren't really thinking structurally about 
whether or not they were trying to get to some kind of organization. And what we've seen, I think, specifically after 2016 in the growth of um, a popular left movement sort of broadly in this country is that people are thinking a lot more, specifically young people are thinking a lot more about wanting to organize like writ large, not just change like one issue or two issues, but actually thinking about how they'd like to organize. And they have a vague notion of what a union is. Um, they don't have a specific, you know, sense of what a trade union as defined right now is, but they know that they want some container through which they can continue to negotiate uh, around their conditions and advocate for themselves. And that has been a pretty significant shift. Last question. Our podcast is called Reasons to be Cheerful, and I think you've given us lots of reasons to be cheerful. But, but, you know, you deal day to day with workers on the front line who are, you know, struggling against employers who are not necessarily the best uh, kind of, um, you know, responders to those demands. Give us a sort of finish a reason to be cheerful. Yeah, I mean, I gotta say, when the pandemic hit, um, we were um, flooded with campaigns by frontline workers, the most vulnerable, the poorest people in the country, the people who we knew were going to have to keep going to work, like grocery store employees and healthcare workers and logistics people, people in the gig economy. And the sense of self-regard um, uh, and, and regard for community that was demonstrated by people who were running these campaigns to really protect themselves and their coworkers, when by any indication a person might want to give up, was incredibly hopeful. And the fact that people continue to organize in a context where we're told that we are not powerful, where we're told that we aren't worthy, but that we continue to do that, we continue to support one another, will never not be inspiring to me. I, I just... it. It makes me feel cheerful every day and the way that it is done often with great humor and great passion and sometimes anger is uh, the best part of my day. Well, look, M- Michelle Miller, you certainly cheered us up. Uh, we're, we're really grateful to you for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Now, to talk about the experience of New Zealand in relation to these issues around unions, I'm delighted to say that we are joined by Richard Wagstaff, who is president of the New Zealand Council of Trade Unions and was a member of the Working Group on Fair Pay Agreements, which came up with a series of recommendations for how New Zealand needed to change. Richard, thank you so much for joining us in what is the evening there in New Zealand. Kia ora. Good, good to be here. Good, well, great, great to have you. Just before we get into the trade union issues, much attention is focused on the election in the United States, but there is a very important election in New Zealand uh, taking place in October where our friend Jacinda Ardern is uh, up for re-election. How is it going? Uh, it's looking pretty promising, and it's looking as though we should have a return of uh, Jacinda Ardern as, as our Prime Minister. Um, but, you know, as they say, a week's a long time in politics. We've all got our fingers crossed. And certainly she's, a, she's, she's admired by us and indeed admired uh, around the world. Now, you lead New Zealand's Council of Trade Unions. Can you start by giving us an overview of the position of trade unions and, and the way the labour market has worked in New Zealand and how it's changed in recent decades before we get on to the recommendations of your group? Yeah, sure. New Zealand has a proud history of trade unionism. Um, many of our affiliates are more than a, a century old, uh, and they have had uh, 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 many victories in that time and some hard times, but but largely uh, for most of the 20th century, um, you know, it was a very strong trade union movement, and we had what we called uh, industrial awards, a regulated labour market, um, and uh, a very big presence of collective bargaining and, and collective action at times. Uh, in the 1980s, though, uh, or early 1990s, in the 1980s, we had a, a, a massive swing towards a neoliberal agenda. And um, within a decade or less, the trade union movement was cut in half uh, or, or less because overnight industry agreements were abolished, rights of access and rights to collective bargaining were severely curtailed, and um, unions shrank dramatically from a majority of the workforce down to something like uh, uh, about 20% of the workforce. So the experience in that respect is quite similar to what Mrs Thatcher did here in the UK. And you've seen a rise in inequality as a result of that? 
Oh, a dramatic rise in inequality. New Zealand prided itself on being a place that was equal and had a, was a fair go for anybody and all of those things. But yeah, dramatic rise in inequality. Actually, what was interesting too was a was a, um, a falling behind in terms of productivity as well. So um, the neoliberal uh, deregulated labour market produced uh, far far more uh, less for working people, a uh, 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 declining share of the overall economy. Uh, rise in inequality and actually lower productivity all at once. Now, here's a funny thing, which is then Jacinda Ardern appoints, uh, correct me where I go wrong here, Jim Bolger, who was the Prime Minister in 1990, when a lot of this deregulation happened, to lead a working group um, on what should be done about it. And then, maybe even more surprisingly, he and you, maybe not surprising from you, come up with quite radical recommendations on strengthening the role of trade unions. Talk, talk to us a little bit about that. So, yes, uh, under Jacinda Ardern, um, there was a working group chaired by the very prime ex-Prime Minister who was there when it all went wrong for us. He um, did a good job of chairing it. He just simply acknowledged that it didn't produce fair results. He has a, uh, strangely, you might think, a, social, a strong social conscience and fairness, and he just didn't accept that um, the way things have turned out are working and inequality is too great and you should be able to work and live off your wages and currently you can't. It feels a bit like it feels a bit like a government in ten years' time coming along and appointing David Cameron to sort out our relations with Europe. I mean, you know, it's kind of uh, it, it's sort of uh, it, it's interesting. But but he obviously, um, I mean, had he publicly sort of recanted about the effects before Jacinda appointed him, or was it sort of you know anybody's guess what he thought? Uh, no, he hadn't. I mean, obviously, the government had checked it out with him and and decided that he was the right person. And obviously, politically, it was difficult for the National Party, who he used to lead, to criticise it. They did try, and he told them to take a cold shower, uh, quote unquote, uh, because um, and get over it because there's something wrong. And so he he chaired this group, and and it was a political stroke, of course, to have him doing it. But he actually stuck to it. And this can all be quite technical and complicated. So just talk to us in simple terms about what difference, if it's implemented, what difference would this make to workers in New Zealand? What what would be different from what the situation is now? Uh, Well, what will happen is um, we will uh, have the legal right to initiate bargaining in industries uh, where there is uh, very poor conditions of work and probably a low unionisation uh, and and they're stuck there. And um, it will be uh, a requirement for the employers to group together in an association and negotiate with unions. And we will negotiate a set of minimum standards uh, that are that, that are different from the, the, those, the statutory minimums of the um, minimum wage and the minimum holidays and so on. This will be a minimum standard uh, that will be set for a particular industry and will be attuned to the needs of a particular industry. So, um, for example, we might set a minimum standard for security guards. At the moment in New Zealand, we have a lot of security guards on the minimum wage, very poor jobs, working for hundreds of small employers, uh, and we would negotiate a set of basic minimums for security guards that would probably be a better wage. It might include some, some rates for working at night. It might include some, some, some training requirements and so on and so forth. And nobody would be allowed to employ anybody on less than that national standard. Just take explain to us, Richard, just for our listeners, that you've got a national minimum wage. How would you explain the case for going over and above that in specific industries? What's what's the what's the sort of logic behind that? Well, I think we we would argue that the skills and the um, and the responsibilities of certain jobs are higher than the very lowest you can imagine. Uh, a good example is um, in New Zealand, our uh, probably like the UK, our bus um, operators they tend to full business. So just recently, um, the city of Wellington, where I'm speaking from now, put out a tender for for bus drivers. The tender um, that they had to bid on uh, specified the bus type, the size of it, the engine type, the number of seats, exactly where those buses had to be 24 hours a day, what stops, everything. The one thing the tender didn't stipulate was the cost of labour. So the existing um, provider had a union contract that was well above the the, the minimums in the the law, but all all the other companies that tendered 
against them and competed for that contract only had the statutory minimums. They didn't have to pay a union rate. And so they, and guess what? Guess who won the tender? Certainly not the company that had a union agreement. And so that's an example of we had an industry standard, we can lift the standard across an industry. The important thing too that I didn't mention before about how we would get these things going is they're likely to be, um, you know, there's no right to take industrial action in them. But if we fail to reach agreement, they'll go to compulsory arbitration. So there will be a settlement in the end. And the other a really important feature about them is that we would be negotiating for the whole workforce, whether they're union members or not. And we would go to the whole workforce in the process of negotiating them and ratifying them. So what we would do in effect is bring the experience of collective bargaining and freedom of association um, to workforces who have never ever experienced it and aren't likely to unless we have an instrument like fair pay agreements. Richard, can I ask you, do you lose your right to strike over pay if you're working in a sector that's covered by a fair pay agreement? Absolutely not. All it is, if you think about it, it's just like a more sophisticated set of minimums than the current statutory minimums that cover all industries. So you can individually get an agreement. The worst thing that could ever happen to you is you're on the fair pay rate. But I would hope that we will still collectively bargain and at times take industrial action for better conditions than that minimum. So it's just really a more sophisticated set of minimums. And do you think it'll have a knock-on effect on uh, trade union membership? Do you think you know the, the incentive to join uh, a union is lessened if you're working in a sector that's covered by a fair pay agreement? Or do, do, do you feel people still value that because of work on standards and practices and conditions and so on? I would certainly hope so. Um, time will tell, but I would imagine we would go for these uh, fair pay agreements in many industries where there isn't uh, much union strength because we don't need a fair pay agreement for nurses. We don't need one for teachers. We've pretty well got 95% density and we can collectively bargain good rates. But in those industries where there's really no reach, there's really no ability to collectively organise at the moment, uh, I think it will hopefully expose those workers to unions and they'll become more interested in that and, and, and we'll get more support for it. How have these proposals gone down with bosses, with employers? Many employers are, are, are very resistant to unions in New Zealand, um, probably not unlike the UK. Um, some are fine, but some are very resistant. Um, and um, it's particularly enterprise, multi-enterprise agreements or industry agreements. On the, on the other hand, there have been some employers have said to us, you know what, this would be good. We can't lift wages when our competition keeps dragging us down, uh, particularly in p- very competitive industries like supermarkets. You know, the, the, the price of things is so competitive, if they drive up their wages too much, they won't be able to, to, to manage with it. So we've seen some employers have said to us quietly, you know what, we're with you. Um, and there's also a recognition that our low, low, we have a low-wage, low-skill, low-productivity economy. Our productivity is awful. There's a feeling that if we can lift our standards of training, lift the rates of wages, attract more people into key industries, we could actually lift our game all around and, and do better. And, and, and if Jacinda wins the election, Richard, how – I guess this is the sort of $60 million question – but how – quickly and how extensively do you think we'll see these fair pay agreements implemented? Uh, Well, both the Greens and Labour have told us that it's a priority for them and we would expect uh, we would move towards a legislative process within the first year and we would have, I would hope that we have the law passed well within the next three years so that we can actually get some fair pay agreements done before the next election. That uh, That would be our expectation. Well, look, Richard, you've you've given us a very, very clear uh, explanation and shown us what's possible. Um, uh, we obviously wish uh, Jacinda all the best of luck for the um, election. And uh, we're really grateful to you for joining us. Thank you so much, Richard Wagstaff. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks. I hope you've enjoyed and been inspired by these stories of workers advocating for themselves and organising in modern workplace environments. Um, Because a lot of the conversation, especially with Alex, singled out one company, Deliveroo, in the interest of fairness, we did just want to rattle through what Deliveroo have had to say publicly about some of the issues raised. Um, On Khalid Khalil, uh, the company has since explained their version of the dismissal of Mr Khalil, saying the driver did not adhere to Deliveroo's COVID-19 safety policies on three occasions. Uh, On this 
matter of being fired by app. They say when a rider consistently fails to meet the service standards they signed up to, our team will investigate, notify the rider and potentially consider ending our contract with that individual. Ending a contract is extremely rare, impacting 4% of riders each year. Although I guess if you think about how many uh, riders there are, that that isn't uh, an insignificant number. Um, And their statement on whether riders can appeal, they say riders who wish to query the decision can contact rider support and their concerns will be reviewed. A company spokesperson said that uh, it did not give any time frame for resolving cases. So what did you think? I found it exciting and quite inspiring. And I'll tell you why. I think, and I know this won't be the same for you, Ed, because you talk to and work with unions all the time. You're very aware of what they're doing. Um, But I think for a lot of people in the private sector, unions are a nice idea. They're seen as a nice idea, but a bit of a thing of the past, probably because of how they were so diminished uh, under the, the Thatcher government in the 80s and, and then subsequently. I mean, I know that when I was starting out in my career in the 90s, and it's it's a career, you know, with short contracts or no contracts, no sick leave, no holiday pay. It, it, I just didn't think a, a trade union was something that was open to me. And I think that is how it is to a much greater extent these days with the changing nature of work for people working in the gig economy. And if you've ever felt pessimistic, as I know I have, about the future of trade union membership, um, I think there's plenty to be optimistic about here. I think what's interesting for me is in sort of two parts, uh, and, and, I, and I'm really interested in what you say. I think, first of all, that, you know, we are dealing with a very, mu- a very different workplace from that of 30 or 40 years ago. And I think, you know... Everything flows from that in a way. I mean, everything flows from that and the fact that the law has been changed in both the US and the UK, at least, to make it much harder to form trade unions, get people in trade unions, so on. But it's also that the workplace has changed. And I think what's interesting about both of these, both the campaigns we featured before we talked to Richard from New Zealand, is that they are kind of leaning into that and thinking, okay, well, how do we organise in a different way? And, and, you know, I think it's really important to point out, you know, the established unions in Britain, GMB, Unite, um, other other unions are doing this too, to find ways of um, kind of getting to people. And then the second thing I think that's really interesting is this issue of sectoral collective bargaining, the thing that we heard about from New Zealand, because it's really, I think it's accepting that if we just wait till everybody's in a union, in a particular industry, we might be waiting a very long time. But maybe there's some, you know, beyond a minimum wage, as we discussed with Richard, there should be just, you know, in particular, in in, 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 in industries, and the guy Jim Bolger, the former Conservative Prime Minister, talked about this in his report, in their report, you know, where there are big imbalances of power, you know, there really is a case for putting your thumb on the scale to to, to to kind of redress the balance and make sure that there's some basic minimum standards. And I, I think, you know, I think that I think both both of them are kind of, you know, represent kind of innovative thinking to the kind of world that we're inhabiting. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at Cheerful Podcast. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. And our cheerful person this week is a performer, a writer, and author of seven books, including How to Be Hopeful, Bernadette Russell. Hello. Hello. Nice to see you all. Well, nice lovely to, see to you. have you on. And 
Before we go any further, just before we hit record, you dropped a bombshell on us. And Absolute we thought this needs, bombshell. This needs exploration on the podcast. You say you, you have met Ed in the past. You've done karaoke with him. Yeah. So basically, earlier on, I was so, I was very excited to be talking to you both. Really excited. And then I remembered that we kind of did karaoke together. And I actually did tweet about it because I thought you might have seen. There's a picture of us. Ed, oh my god me and my sister we're not singing at the time so just to explain it was a labor party event at the riverley ballroom a fundraiser and um you I, i've got a little clip of you singing but i've never made that public i'll send that to you was i labor leader at that point you were you were labor leader it wow. was just before that election and you very what kind possessed me to to sing karaoke with you bernadette i was desperate for votes maybe bernadette can, can I ask that you specifically email that to me? I, I would very much, you know, like that footage. I need to, to vet it. Uh, I, I need to examine it closely and ensure it gets the audience it deserves. What can I say? I'm, I'm left completely dumbfounded, Jeff, by this revelation. He, he will try and suppress it, Bernadette. There, there are a number of videos that he's suppressing. It's going to be in the same vault along with the Icelandic thermal bath video of me and Jeff and the trampoline video where I seem to have made a small child fall over or something. Is that right, Jess? <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't know. I mean, I didn't. I don't think I ever made public the little foot because it doesn't, didn't seem fair because you're very vulnerable, aren't you, when you do karaoke? Definitely, me particularly. So I'll, I'll, I will just send it to Jeff and we'll speak no more of it. Bernadette, let's talk about hope. What got you into writing and speaking about the idea of hope and hopefulness? Yeah, it was a... a pretty long journey and actually started back for me right back in 2011 um I'm I'm working in theatre mainly I've always worked in theatre and I was at the Edinburgh Festival in 2011 in in a cafe nursing I'm going to be honest a, a little bit of a hangover as is part of the tradition of being at the Edinburgh Festival and uh the telly was on with the sound down and on the television screens with this with the films and images of the riots that burst into London that summer which I'm sure you'll all remember as a response to the killing uh, by the police of Mark Duggan in Tottenham and I sort of sat in the cafe at that point I'd been you know making theatre for many years and I was like I was horrified I was really upset it was upsetting to see the way it was reported from that moment on uh, by the press it's horrible I felt really overwhelmed by it to be honest and and I was also thinking, I'm not sure what the point is of me standing up a rickety ladder wearing a petticoat in the great scheme of helping to change the world. And um, Not that I think entertainment is very important as well, of course it is. So when I came home, I just went to the local post office with this thought in my head and I was thinking about everything, you know, uh, climate change and a war and famine, all of these things rushing around my head. And the boy in front of me in the queue didn't have enough money to pay for his envelope for his driving licence application. So I said, oh, I've got 50p. I gave it to him. And he kind of welled up with tears. He was really grateful. And I thought, what an extraordinary reaction just to 50p. Um, That was on August the 18th, 2011. So I thought, I'm going to do that every day. Every single day for a year, I'm going to try and do something kind to a complete stranger and see if I can see what difference kindness makes. And because of that, I, I kind of trained myself and I focused on noticing kindness. So it wasn't really for very long about the kindness that I did, but more the more that I started to notice that actually the world is run on and glued together, held together and functions on kindness and on love and on community and on compassion. And that actually the stories that we mainly get told are the opposite. And can you talk us through some of those ideas and and tips? I mean, uh, you know, people should buy the book to find these, how to be hopeful. But just if if somebody's thinking, what can I do today? What what sort of things are you talking about? Yeah. So I start kind of with the individual, so with with you yourself, because I think the first thing you have to do is fortify hope for yourself. So there's an exercise in the beginning that I found really useful which is kind of, um, you know, the pan- the story of Pandora's box. She has a box, she opens it, all the terrible things come out. Hope nestles in the bottom. Well, I sort of co-opted that idea and made, had this box of hope. And in it, I keep um, physical uh, memories and uh, uh, objects of things that make me hopeful. So that's one of the exercises 
And then secondly, and I think this is where your podcast is part of the ecosystem of hope, which which helps this, is really sort out how you consume the news and how you engage with the news as a priority. It doesn't mean you have to sort of ignore hard news or realities of what's going on in the world, but to just be aware of how engaging with the news and current affairs is making you feel and actively pursuing a hopeful or positive news story every day. And I think it really helps build your personal resilience not to think the world's this sort of apocalyptic view we're presented with by most of the mainstream media. That isn't the only thing. There there are scientists, there are innovations, there are engineers, there are community leaders, there are beautiful, passionate people all over the world in every bit of the world doing amazing things. Can I just go back to your experience in 2011 and the 50p with the guy in the queue Mm-hmm. Did you then do one, try to do one of those things every day? Yeah. And what was it? Well, tell us about what that was like and what were the high points and the low points. There's a couple I'll tell you quick, really quickly. One was that my friend contacted me and asked me to write to her nana's best friend. Her nana had passed away and her best friend was really lonely. And I found out a few things about her. So I posted, I wrote her a letter, hand wrote it, and I posted her some Yardley's lavender perfume. And I heard nothing, but I thought, I hope she liked it. Two months later, my friend got back to me and she said, she told me that changed her life. If someone she didn't know could go to that trouble of being so kind, then the world must be full of nice people. And from that day, she started going out again, started doing shopping for her neighbours. That I can't tell you how much beautiful that was. And the second, this is just a funny one, was I put a £5 note inside a book in a self-help section of Waterstones with a note going, go on, treat yourself, love Bernadette. Eight months later, someone tweeted me a picture of that £5 note because they'd been handed it as change in Nottingham. I know. Well, you wrote on the note. I wrote on the note, treat yourself, love Bernadette Russell, in in a book in Waterstones in Greenwich in London, and then eight months later, someone tweeted me an image of it and they'd had it as change in in Nottingham. And Bernadette, how did it change you as a person by day 365 or 6? It was so, such a powerful and beautiful and nerve-wracking experience. It changed my view of the world permanently because I noticed kindness. Because what happened was I st- people started telling me stories. They would say, oh, what are you doing that for? And then they would tell me about kindness they'd received or that they'd done. So I start, So I, I realised that I'd had a slightly, perhaps, pessimistic view of human beings in the world. And that went forever. That's gone. And what happened when I was researching hope, what happened during lockdown, even though I had to do some rewrites of the book in response to it, there again, Ed, suddenly there was this lockdown happened there's this outpouring of good humour and kindness and compassion. And it it, it was so fortifying to me. It was, I was like, look, I've been saying this for years. Look, 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 it's happening. It was so beautiful and lovely. And you know, the NHS call out for volunteers being oversubscribed by 40,000 people, mutual aid groups springing up everywhere. Suddenly windows turned into beautiful art gallery displays full of positive messages and and there we saw we need to hold on to this right now we really need to hold on to it because what we saw is what we're capable of all of us and what we're capable of is huge amounts of good humor and love actually well look you've made me hopeful including about my karaoke (laughs) Bernadette Russell the book is how to be hopeful we're incredibly grateful to you for joining us. Thank you. So lovely. Thank you. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're in the outro. Uh, if you've got thoughts on this week's episode or if you've got suggestions for future episodes, you can find us cheerfulpodcast.com. We read every email. We had lots of reaction to the interview with Michael Sandel and his book, The Tyranny of Merit. Last week, we quite like these long-form conversations. We've got one coming up uh, in the coming weeks with Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, uh, who is part of the squad, the so-called squad with Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. Um, I think we should thank our guests, unless you've got be- anything be- to say, comrade. I d- well, we, uh, I think we both should be as ashamed as each other in that we forgot our three-year anniversary last week. Does this, does this mean the romance, the spark has gone out of our relationship, Ed? Darling, it just means that 
I thought you had forgotten and I didn't want to embarrass you. That sounds like an excuse you've used before in your marriage. Quite possibly. Uh, um, Gosh, we forgot our anniversary. I think because we put quite a lot of effort into the 150th anniversary. So it's sort of quite confusing, isn't it? You've you've got to choose which way you go. You either mark the calendar anniversary or you go for the number with a zero on the end. And on, on this occasion, we went for the nice round number with a zero on the end. Yeah, and I think that sort of feels appropriate. But I think it's it's important that we that we mark it. You haven't got the three year itch, though. Definitely not. No, I'm happy to renew our vows. Uh, I'd like to thank our guests, Alex Marshall, Michelle Miller, and Richard Wagstaff. And thank you to the fantastic Bernadette Russell for bringing a bit of hope and joy to the podcast. Emma Caution produces our podcast. All the research is done by Joel Pierce. He does a magnificent job. That said, he is supported by Fanula DC and Zoe Gelber and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed made the music. James Deacon made our little high dents. And the artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been Opal Fruits. He's been Starburst. And these have been reasons to make your mouth water. To make your mouth water. Mm-hmm.